Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Podcast Network. I am David Kern, and as always on Close Reads, I am joined by two people that have grit and grittiness, Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. <laughs> Angelina and Tim, how's it going? I know you're both kind of feeling under the weather, so, you know. Yes, yes. But we're powering through. I we think are... that's the takeaway message, <laughs> is that we're powering through. I, I'm glad to hear that. I'm sorry that you have that you have to, you know, that you have to employ your trademark grit and grittiness to power through to make it through we're powering through the flu as well as you can right i i asked when you both got on before we started recording i um i asked i asked how you were doing and angelina was on first and she said i'm hanging in there there's a little nasally and all that and i was like yeah okay then tim jumps on i said tim how's it going he goes i'm hanging in there (laughs) so this is the hanging in there episode Yeah, yeah right exactly um, well, I'm... I was, I was it's story time with Tim. I was, um, <laughs> my first like real job after I worked for a Senator and then I worked for an organization that ran political campaigns and we would have a bunch of clients, you know, like 25 clients. And as you would expect the campaign season kind of climaxes with the primary elections and the general elections. And I remember we had hell week before the primary and general elections when our candidates, you know, were getting down to the wire. And I remember we worked, my boss and I worked until two o'clock in the morning and we finished working and we were at Waffle House in Atlanta. And as one does, does, and we were kind of like- The glamour that Tim is describing. Yeah, 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 (laughs) over glamour and raisin toast. So we're walking back across the street to our office and I'm thinking, Oh, good. I get to go home and get in bed before I, you know, get back up for work in the morning. And I grab my keys and he says, where are you going? I said, Mark, it's two o'clock in the morning. I'm going home. And he said, no, no, actually elections are one at two o'clock in the morning. We're going back to work. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I think I ended up working till like seven. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway, but it was like, there was this real lesson. I thought, gosh, yeah. Elections probably are one at two o'clock in the morning and like whether you feel it or you don't feel it you like show up you got to show up and do it (laughs) well i appreciate and as do our listeners i'm sure that you showed up the both of you showed up for this episode um so grittiness grittiness i know like while tim was talking i was thinking and this is also how art is understood at two o'clock in the morning with a bottle of wine and your best friends like that is when you have the best insight into the universe and then you never ever repeat any of it right (laughs) and then sometimes it's understood and communicated by three people who are talking on the internet and they're going to send it out to thousands of people and they have they have no comments on what they're actually drinking while they're recording it's it might be dayquil though um so we are here to talk about art we're here to talk about uh howard zen by ian forrester and we're here to talk about chapters 11 through 16 
And David, can I jump in again? Just like I'm just going to dominate this show, I guess. What? <laughs> Tim's I, taking I finished... advantage of my weekend state. And yeah, that's right. That's right. right now. <laughs> Please do, Tim. Please do. At least you asked. <laughs> <laughs> my question, David and Angelina, is what is this book about? Well, you know, that's a question that I actually had on my radar. I actually wrote in the margins and I might as well have just said, Tim is going to ask, what is this book about? Because, yeah, right. <laughs> but I mean, Angelina, are you feeling that same, that same question? I think that's a question that we can talk about a lot today. And, and I wanted to kind of hover over our conversation today, but is that, is that how you're feeling too? What is this book well, about? I think that's a legitimate question, but it's not how I was feeling. So, you know, as we have sort of <laughs> marked the ups and downs of the courtship of Angelina by dead authors, uh, <laughs> where we are in this phase is we're back in infatuation. Okay. Um, All right. I don't want to go steady. Um, yeah, I'm feeling him so hard in these chapters. Like, oh, he's speaking my language. And so I, I kind of, I, I can, I can sympathize with where Tim's coming from with the whole, what is this about? But I honestly got to this point in these chapters where I actually said out loud, I don't even care what happens. You know, I just, I just want you to talk to me forever. Hmm. Yeah. You know, I was, as I was reading, I, I marked around the margins that it doesn't really uh, matter it, it feels like it doesn't really matter to Ian Forster what's actually happening, like what the drama of their lives is. And I think we kind of get that with um, just how chapter 11 begins. Like the real drama of what happened of Mrs. Wilcox dying and of the fact that Margaret had been there for a couple of weeks, like that's, it's, that happens off screen. Right. Yeah, so he jumps it. Yeah, we're just dropped into it after the fact. Almost, I mean, the funeral is glossed over. It's not even from the perspective of the people who are, like of the family. It's from random people who feel like the funeral is ruining their day. And then you get dropped into the Wilcoxes kind of having to process their grief. But we, as the readers are dropped in, you know, weeks or whatever after the uh -huh. happened. Right. It's like so, he's deliberately avoiding anything that would suck us into these characters uh -huh. or give us pathos and kind of the typical things of a novel, right? Where you identify with at least one character, right? And you, and you're, Tim, you're kind of feeling that with him and he seems to be deliberately creating this distance where we're not going to feel that do you do you feel that Tim? do you feel like they're the characters like there's not a character who you're pulling for like because one of the questions i was asking myself too is who is this book about like who yeah. is yeah. our mm -hmm. protagonist mm -hmm. that is our kind of like our proxy or at least who we root for and it, it, do you feel is part of the problem that you're not feeling, oh, he, he, this is the person I'm rooting for. These people aren't compelling to me. Yes. Yes. That's, I think that is what I'm feeling. But I think even more than that, I just don't, I don't know any of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. to, uh, because he's ready at hand. Well, let me stop. I'm getting confused. I'm confusing even myself. <laughs> I hear sometimes people say, I don't like this book because there's nobody there was no character that I liked. Mm -hmm. I've never felt that way. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that I've never felt that way, but for me, I think part of what makes novels that I love so lovely is that I at least know the character. Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment is, I mean, he's a vile character. I don't know that anyone really likes Raskolnikov, but I do yeah. think that people can identify deeply with him and how um, 
how depraved he's let himself become. And I think everyone, that's part of the power of that book is that I think everyone can be like, oh yeah, I can do that. I can get to that place. That's, that's, you know, and Dostoevsky is wonderful for that. But I feel here, like, I want to root for Leonard Bass. I don't know him. Yeah. I want to root for Margaret. I don't know her. I want to root for Helen. I don't know Helen at all. I don't know any of these people. It, it seems like you're kind of like, uh, characters need to be at least compelling, even if they're not likable. And that you're, fi- you're having a hard time identifying what's compelling about the people. Yes, right. Oh, I completely agree with Tim. That I don't feel like we we know them. And, so I, and I guess I'm feeling like that has to be deliberate. You know, yeah, like that's, that's what my question has to be. Yeah, like, so the story is so much less about these characters and who they are and what they feel and mm-hmm. what's their motivation and what's happening yeah. and what they're responding to. It's much less about that and more much more about his commentary on them right mm-hmm. he's commenting on everything on london on life on ideas and art and love and then he comments on <laughs> mr wilcox and margaret and helen and Leonard. like it's all the same voice though the comment the mm. comment the comment yeah you one of you made a point in a previous conversation that we didn't record um that about how it feels like the characters are kept at a distance and i yes. and, yeah. and i like that i like that i like that metaphor because <clears throat> and i mentioned in that conversation that when you look at say Flannery O'Connor or a lot of traditional novels, even if the narrator is, you know, even if it's not first person or whatever, the narrator puts us inside of the character's head and we get to know that character because of, because of what's going on in the character's head. But here we get to know the characters, like our opinions of the characters are formed not by what happens inside their head so much as much as by the narrator's comments about the characters. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. sort of like, it's hard to make a judgment ourselves about the characters when the only opinion of like our opinions are so informed by what the narrator has to say about them, which, and, and that's complicated because the narrator's feelings about his characters or her characters are probably um, complicated or flawed in some ways. I don't know. It's, it's a, there's a complicated dynamic going on there that makes yeah, it hard to know how to feel about the characters. Agreed. Yeah. And of course, you know, we're, we're, we're only what halfway through this book. So right, right. If, if that even, so it's very hard for me to, you know, predict where he's going to go with this. But one of the things I think we saw in this section was with, with the death of Mrs. Wilcox, that people are sort of unknowable. Yeah. And, and maybe that's part of what's going on here too, that, that they can't really know Leonard best. He he's becomes a project to them. Right. And he can't really know them. And Mr. Wilcox doesn't really know Mrs. Wilcox. Otherwise, they would have understood why she would have given it to Margaret, right? And he goes on to say they can't think about the world the way she thinks about it, that she would want a spiritual heir. And even Charles says, but ancestors were so important to her, which was so such an interesting way for him to totally miss the point about <laughs> yeah. how much it meant to her that this bit passed on to someone who would truly love it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that was kind of what I was thinking through this section, too, that maybe people are just unknowable. Because we, I agree, yeah. agree with Tim. We don't know these characters, none of them. And so if we knew like one of them and we didn't know the rest, I would say maybe he's just not a very good writer and didn't develop his characters. But I mean, he's not letting us know anyone. Yeah. As you said, David, earlier was uh, like every time we almost get to that point and you're like, okay, here we go. He's like, yeah. boom. Yeah, yeah. Right yeah. And then and starts, I think David's and starts, right. Go ahead. That he, I think David's right that he this is very intentional. Yeah. Because it will go from being on the verge of feeling like we're getting to know a character. Like we're about to, 
we're about to really get how they process information or how they process the world or what they actually think about things or whatever. And then all of a sudden we're pulled out and he starts giving us like nonfiction, right? I think when yeah. you said it feels like it's red light, it reads like an essay or something at times. Mm -hmm. So just as you're about to get into the world of the fiction, like truly get dropped into it, he pulls us out of it and gives us creative nonfiction to use the contemporary term. Yeah. And that's, I, I wanna... that's, that's jarring in a way. It is jarring. That's and a perfect that word for it. It is jarring. And so I guess a lot of your enjoyment is going to depend on whether or not you like this commentary. And I can totally see how Tim as a playwright would not, that would not be his impulse, you know, his first response. Cause of course he's going to, I'm assuming. I, I don't have the luxury of a narrator. In, right. In a, in like you, play. Just, yeah. you want the characters to show us themselves, right? Yeah. Yeah. They, and typically that's what happens in a novel, but, but here the narrator, I think some people on the Facebook page very early on asked, is the narrator a character? And mm. that's such a good question because his voice is the dominant voice. We're seeing the world through his eyes and his eyes only. Um, yeah. I happen to be enamored with this voice, and so I like it. But I mean, I guess if somebody wasn't enamored with it, <laughs> the funny thing, Angelina, is I I'm enamored of the voice also. Like when the narrator starts talking, I'm I'm amused. I think he's witty. I think he's wry. I like the observations that he's making about London and about. If he were giving a speech at one of their little gatherings, you would enjoy it. Is what you're saying? Oh, I'd lean forward. I, yeah. So, I mean, I think that right now for me is one of the strengths of the book, but that I, I don't know what the book is about and I don't know the characters. And I, and I, I think we we're all kind of in agreement. His um, withholding the characters from us is deliberate. Uh, I still, I'm just struggling with it as you know, an enjoyable piece of writing. I, I was thinking back as you were just talking about other books that we've done. Because there have been other books where we said, <clears throat> um, like, what is this book about? Yeah. Right? Or at right. times in books, we were like, what is this book about? You know, and, I, and so like Gilead, for example, which yeah. Lena didn't love. But, and that's the question we were asking a lot. What is this book actually about? But we never felt like, like we, we knew who our character was. We knew who the main character was. Even if we didn't like him or didn't like the decisions yeah, he, yeah, yeah. he talked, we knew him. Like, yeah, we had a sense of who he was or even people ask the same thing about J. Crow. They're like, what is this book about? It's just this guy. And it's just like, this, it, like not a lot really happens. And occasionally he goes out and like has conversations with people or whatever. Um, and, but even there, like you knew J. Right. And that's such, that's the biggest difference between that, those books and this book, I think. Okay. I so, agree. so what, what stands out to me as you're talking is the three books this year that we said that about are all named for places. Hmm. Gilead, Howard's Inn, Brideshead Revisited. Huh. And, and I've been thinking about how this is named Howard's point. Inn. And they're not, the action's not even happening yet. I know, I was thinking that. Right? Has so, anything happened there yet? It, no. Well, I mean, the early romance. But, but wait, they those, say something. The letter. They have a conversation at, in one of these chapters about, is a place more important than people? Yeah, right. They have it in 15, right? Chapter 15? So yeah, one of the chapters we read. Um, but it's interesting to me that the three times that we have said this past year, what is this book about? It's They've all been about a place. That is really interesting. What a keen observation. I love that you said that, I mean, this is kind of on a separate note, but when I was looking for that, that line about place, you mentioned the thing about how people are unknowable. And right at the end of chapter 15, there's the part after Margaret and Helen are talking to Mr. Wilcox and he's left. 
Um, and she says, the tide had begun to, well, we're kind of, Margaret's kind of thinking, the tide had begun to ebb. Margaret le- leaned over the parapet and watched it sadly. Uh, Mr. Wilcox had forgotten his wife, Helen, her lover. She herself was probably forgetting. Everyone moving. Is it worthwhile attempting the past when there is this continual flux, even in the hearts of men? Mm. So that's just related to your point, Angela. Gosh, it's so related. I just had a conversation today with someone where he said to me, I don't know if a human being is ever truly knowable because they are in a constant state of changing. And that's just exactly what that line said. Which, and that might be why, well, and, but that's also, I was going to say that might be why people appeal to place. Like you appeal to the steadfastness of Brideshead. Right. Or the steadfastness of Howard's End or whatever. But contrasting that with how he keeps talking about London, right? Like the mm-hmm. changing nature right. of London in the countryside. And that line that you were talking about there is also in chapter five. In my book, it's on 136. But um, he's, t- um, it, uh, I'd have, Margaret's talking to a bunch of people, it looks like. But she says, I believe we, sh- we shall come to care about people less and less, Helen. The more people one knows, the easier it becomes to replace them. It's one of the curses of London. I quite expect to end my life caring most for a place. Yes. Which is maybe yes. a bit of foreshadowing. There were a lot of lines like that. And even the, when they describe, and this was so great on a symbolic level, they described the fight they had over getting a garage on Howard's Inn and how they had to fight with the roots of the tree. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was great. Which is, you know, so, so you know, the tree is rooted, the place is rooted. And even Mr. Wilcox says, it, it, in the end, it doesn't matter how much money you spend, you're never going to be able to modernize those old houses, so, right? So the, the place itself is resistant to all this change in the world. So what do you do? If, so then the only alternative is you tear it down or you just don't worry about it. Like you don't worry about being as you know contemporary as possible and making it modern or you have to tear it down. Like those are really the only options. Right. <clears throat> Which is kind of a terrible, in some ways, a terrible decision to have to make. Even because you can idealize either one of those things. But like the ideals are not. And that's what they're doing always, in London, right? right. Tearing down right. their home to build some apartments. And it, cause, so like, on one hand, you have like this ideal of capitalism, I suppose, like tear it down, you build these apartments, that person can make a bunch of money, it brings everything into the modern world. On the other hand, you've got like the ideals of the old world, but neither of them are perfect ideals. And like, the, where's the place in the middle? It seems like that's one of the questions that's being asked here. And that there maybe there is no perfect place in the middle, and so you you have to be left behind or jump on and move forward. Yeah. Yes, and the Schlegels are literally getting pushed out, not just you know in, in the in the fact literally in their homes, right? But like culturally, they're at this place where they have to make a decision, and that's why Margaret's conversation with Tibby about what kind of man do you want to be. Even though it was a hilarious scene, yeah, right? yeah, I'm yeah. unfamiliar but with, something... this, with this passion you're describing, right? <laughs> for men want to work, but but you know the context for our readers is that um, historically in England a gentleman does not work. I mean, this is why you end up with the comical Bertie Wooster. But historically, there exactly. was a reason for that, and that is because a gentleman's work was to take care of the land and his tenants. To have some kind of job would mean, of course, that he now he's not. Um, fulfilling his duties, right, as the lord of the manor and right. taking care of the tenants. So there's a long history that he doesn't do work, not because he's some, you know, lazy good for nothing, but because his work was in the maintenance of the community, any outside job would take away from that. So slowly over time, of course, we have the shift of power and wealth away from land into money and a rising middle class and commerce, blah, 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 blah. But 
the holdover of the idea that a gentleman doesn't work, it stays in there a really long time. And of course, that's why P.J. Woodhouse uh, has such fun with that because Bertie Wooster is now, he is the useless gentleman, right? Um, mm, yeah. And, and it's funny and it's comical because there really isn't a place for him in the world anymore. But that's the backdrop to Margaret having this conversation with Tibby. You know, it's not just that she's telling a 16 year old boy, you got to get a job. And he's like, the job I want is to do nothing. <laughs> I mean, that's funny, but contextually, this is old world versus new world. That's what's going on in this conversation. She's mm-hmm. saying, I can't tell you what to do because I'm only your sister, but seriously, the world is changing. Men are getting jobs and they're finding it that it's satisfying. And he says, so I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know this excitement you're talking about this. I'm unfamiliar. However the line was, it was so funny. I'm yeah. unfamiliar with this exhilaration you were alluding to. <laughs> but, and then but that's she what's said, going on. And then she says, and one day, it might be as strange for women not to work as it was a hundred years ago for them not to be married. Yeah. Right. Right. So there's a lot of old world, new world tensions, again, fitting in with that overall theme that the world is changing so rapidly. Yes. People don't know who they are. Tibby doesn't know who he is. That's why it was so fascinating that she says, pick a man that you admire and then organize your life. Like he does. She's yeah. She says, um, I'm not saying it to educate you. It's what I really think. I believe that in the last century, men have developed the desire for work and they must not starve it. It's a new desire. It goes, it goes with a great deal that's bad, but in itself, it's good. And I hope that for women too, not to work will soon become as shocking as not to be married was a hundred years ago. And then he says, I have no experience of this profound desire to which you allude. And then she, <laughs> and then she says, then we'll leave the subject till you do. <laughs> so hilarious but that also helps us to understand margaret's um respect for mr wilcox yeah Mm. i was just gonna say it was it was the juxtaposition of tibby um not wanting to work and not knowing what he wants to do with mr wilcox showing up on the train who very clearly i mean he's working hard and hit and he appears to be with regards to occupational choices kind of savvy mm-hmm. you know he gives in some advice know. for he's in the know yeah he's gonna he's gonna probably well we'll see help leonard bast out with um his pending unemployment you know quit now start interviewing now while you're gainfully employed you look better that's like that's really good advice there's a line there's a line in the end of chapter 13 where Helen says Tibby had better first wonder what he's going to do or what he will do something along those lines. I highly doubt that Ian Forrester wrote the word gonna. Um, (laughs) But, and that got me thinking that it puts him, that puts Tibby more in line with the experience of Leonard Bast than it does with the traditional British aristocrat. And like the fact that he has to figure out what it is he's going to do with his life Right. Puts him more in line with... I love that. With the poor, so to speak, the poor-ish or whatever they are, however they view, certainly poorer than them. Um, and at, and less in line with, um, you know, a, a, a Bertie Wooster. And so you can contrast what you're saying with Wilcox with the situation that Tibby's in. Because Tibby's, the, the decisions that he makes are going to determine a lot about where he is in 1920 and 1930 and 1940. Because yes. in 1940 when he's Wilcox's age, is he going to be the Wilcox who has gained some wisdom and experience and put his nose to the grindstone, so to speak, and 
got some grit and some grittiness? Or is he going to kind of resist that, turn into Bertie Wooster, and then become the the Bertie Wooster, but the one that is the tragic version of that, the one who doesn't keep up and thus kind of squanders his inheritance, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of like that hovering over the over Tibby is kind of a at least an interesting subtext, I think. And for for those of our listeners who were you know fans of Downton Abbey, that show dealt yep. with these yep. exact same things. Yeah, in, in 1912. So this is right around the same time. It's dealing with the same thing. The world has changed. The manor homes are closing. Aristocratic families are bankrupt. You know, what do we do now? Everybody's it- displaced. Yeah. What is what's the what's the what's the family name in Downton? What's his name? The 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 father. The, oh, um, oh, I forgot. I don't. That, that's a big question as the series goes on, which I never finished because it got terrible. But uh, there's the um, the part the Crawleys, where, right? The Crawleys, the Crawleys, yeah. Where it, the question is, you can see the stuff where, as you put it, he's taking care of the community. Yeah. Um, yes. And then, but then he's trying to figure out what that means. Like, what is his role? You know, as after World War One, as they're getting close to world war ii like how that that's changing and evolving and people don't want him to interact with them the way that he used to it's it's a world where a where a um chauffeur can marry the lord's daughter and yes you know right that yeah. not, that's kind of a symbol of the way things were changing um that and someone some like Leonard Bast issues get dealt with mm-hmm, yes mm-hmm, and the chauffeur mm-hmm. is very he's kind of a Leonard Bast character in that he he wants to better himself and, and is feeling that frustration as he comes up against all these um, cultural barriers. Yes. The difference is that the and chauffeur ultimately goes to America, which we've talked about that, you know, America is where you can do that. America is where you can be a self-made man. Mm-hmm. That's a great that is point, not yeah. part of the mythos of England. And mm-hmm. by the way, f- for the Woodhouse Wooster fans, uh, Wooster going back and forth to America is one of my favorite sort of like, yes, little sub subtext like there's these that theme is hilarious to me that he keeps bouncing back and forth and never he's never really sure exactly where he wants to be um which i think is woodhouse playing with the serious idea in a comic fashion but um so let's get back to this idea of what is this book about then um that's a very direct question (laughs) um it lacks sort of subtlety i suppose um but let's just jump right into it i don't mean that as a negative thing per se but what angelina you you said you felt like you were getting your you're starting to kind of be able to get your 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 hands around what it is that he's actually trying to tell us um so well, what is the kind of theme i mean we've, i'm sure we've been talking about it but well, we you... have been talking about a lot of things and i don't know that i'm i'm ready to phrase this as this book is about blank but i can tell you that as i read this section what even though I completely agree, we're not really getting to know the characters. I did feel like Margaret came out as a stronger character in this section. And I feel like this is primarily her story, her coming of age story, her development. That's mm-hmm. what it's feeling like. And, and the fact that it's alluded to that at some point um, in chapter 11, it's, it's alluded to that um, she at some point is going to know the truth about Howard's end, but by that time she will have arranged her life such that she can handle this information. Um, which, I mean, that shot us forward enough in the narrative that I thought, okay, so Margaret and Howard's in, this is connected. These are, these are two ideas that are going to converge at some point. Yeah. For the close readers, there were a lot of, um, a lot of examples of what things that could preview you uh, for possible foreshadowing things that kind of give you a little tease as to what might be coming. 
<clears throat> be interesting to see how many of those he follows up on and how many of them were like, you know, false trails. False trails, yeah. But that was another because they, example where he sort of jolted us out of the narrative, right? To stop the flow and say, by the way, eventually she's going to find out about this and it's going to be fine. Back to the narrative. Which it's, and it's interesting that he basically like, you think, oh, they're going to, somehow she's going to find out about it. And the conflict is going to be, does she want the place? They don't want her there. So the conflict that seems like it's developing, exactly. it's just, it's just kind of shot down and it no, no longer is part of the it. You don't think this is some, you know, she gets <laughs> illy used and somehow this is all going to blow up and be this conflict. Nope. He tells you, no, 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 no. Yeah. Had she known she wouldn't have accepted the gift anyway. So this is not, these are not the droids you're looking for. Like that's, <laughs> over there waving his hand it's another example of the drama that we that the drama that feels like it's supposed to be there he just doesn't care about exactly it's not about exactly. the drama tim do you agree with what she's saying or do you is there any are there any of the threads that are coming together for you that are helping that are helping you kind of think about what this book's about i, I think angelina my hunch is that angelina is <clears> going to be proven right by the end i think it's going to be something like a margaret coming of age story that being said I have been wondering if what this book is, is sort of, it's an impressionist painting. Hmm. It's, um, I mean, even on the cover of my book, it's an impressionist painting from 1914. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if, I wonder if he is sort of showing us the surface of things because that's kind of all that we can get in this world. And I liked, I liked, um, this paragraph on page, my page 104, what I saw chapter? that Angelina, uh, very end of 12. Angelina, you posted this on your Facebook page and I had I did. I highlighted it. That. I thought it was great. And I, I kind of wonder if maybe this is sort of thematically where this book is going. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read yeah. it if you guys don't mind. Starting with the, and someone else on the Facebook page mentioned that they had highlighted it. So we're all kind of zoning in on this same passage is maybe an indicator of what this book, what's going on in this book. Uh, so last full, second to last full paragraph, looking back on the past six months, Margaret realized the chaotic nature of our daily life and its difference from the orderly sequence that has been fabricated by historians. Actual life is full of false clues and signposts that lead nowhere. With infinite effort, we nerve ourselves for a crisis that never comes. The most successful career must show a waste of strength that might have removed mountains. And the most unsuccessful is not that of a man who has taken unprepared, who is taken unprepared, but of him who is prepared and has never taken. On a tragedy of that kind, our national morality is duly silent. It assumes that Preparation against danger is in itself a good, and that men, like nations, are the better for staggering through life fully armed. The tragedy of preparedness has scarcely been handled, save by the Greeks. Life is indeed dangerous, but not in the way that morality would have us believe. It is indeed unmanageable, but the essence of it is not a battle. It is, an un it is unmanageable because it is a romance, and its essence is romantic beauty. This feels like a T.S. Eliot essay. It's so good. <laughs> so shout out to Chris Allridge, who commented on my Facebook that I posted that. 
And she, she hearkened it back to that earlier quote that I liked about better to be fooled than to be suspicious. And she said, this sounded like another indictment against being suspicious. This whole, I've got to be prepared for a battle. Yeah. One of the things I love is like that line about um, looking back on the past six months, Margaret realized the chaotic nature of our daily life and its difference from the orderly sequence that has been fabricated by historians. And it reminded me of the earlier line where it talks about the poor as like um, not being people. They're just easier to think about as statistics mm-hmm. in some ways that, you know, that historians were there could be replaced with like statistics or sociologists. Like you can look at the sequence of time or look at people as data points. And that's much easier. Like that's, you can quantify that. You can measure it. It can, you can make it mean something, but actual life is more complicated than that. It's actually, it's it, it, the things that it seems to signify are rarely what you actually think the false clues um, and the fact and the signposts that lead nowhere. Culturally speaking, I think it's really, I think it's really important that there are a couple of movements that are taking place at the exact same time that this book is being published. Um, the Armory Show in the United States, 1913 or 14, is the moment where the Impressionists and the Cubists kind of show up on the art scene and in like cultural consciousness for the first time. So think Picasso and think Renoir, they are put up in this big, magnificent thousand plus painting show in New York City. And what are the Cubists and what are the impressions about at the risk of like being overly simplistic? They're really interested in the surface of things, not I'm not saying that they're shallow, but they're very interested in how things present. So Monet paints, I think it's Chart, uh, in France, I think 40 times, something like this. And he paints, each painting is in a slightly different light of a slightly different time of day. The Cubists, uh, think Picasso. What do they do? Instead of trying to kind of um, convey dimensionality, they take an object and they kind of flatten the four sides of an object and they make it all on one surface, on one plane. So while this is happening in the art world, philosophically speaking, eh, maybe the most important philosophical trend in the early part of the 20th century when this book is being written is phenomenology, which in many ways is exactly what it sounds like. It's concern with not trying to po- probe the deepest essence of a thing, but kind of like maintaining a kind of a um, humble respect for, we have to deal with what the world presents us. We have to deal with its phenomena. And phenomenology gets interested also in you know, questions of consciousness and things like this. But one of the major tenets or habits of phenomenologists is let's try to understand the world as we receive it, you know, as it's presented to us, as its phenomenon appear to us. And so Edmund Husserl is writing in the early part of the 20th century, right when this book is being written, the Armory Show takes place three or four years after this book is published. And it makes me wonder if there's been so much rapid change in the early part of the 20th century 
in England, in Europe, in the United States, that everything seems fluid, chaotic. And so let's reevaluate. Can we really bore deeply, metaphysically into the essence of things? No. Let's back off and let's deal with the world as it presents us because we've got to be nimble. We've got to be able to move. We have to be able to adjust. And better than getting hung up in kind of like a fixed moral order or a fixed political order or a fixed economic order, let's try to like adapt and let's look at the surface of things and go from there. Do you think that that ties into this idea of he says it's unmanageable because it is a romance and its essence is romantic beauty? So is that. Is that getting at what you're saying? Do you think that's what he's trying to get out there? The idea of romance is more tied to what you, I think, admittedly, simplistically, we're calling the surface of things. Mm-hmm. Do you well, think I think that what, when Tim was talking, I thought about how twice in this section they mention the unseen versus the seen. Yeah. And I think that speaks exactly to what Tim is saying. And Margaret and Helen have that conversation. And Margaret said, look, of course, the unseen is what really matters, but we have to live in this world. And so the scene yeah. matters too. Hmm. So those people, those artists that you're talking about might be agreeing with her. Like, yes, of course, there's something deeper going on, but we, this is, we need to explore and examine and present the world that we actually live in, the world that we can right. touch and feel and and that our senses can can experience yeah Chekhov has this Chekhov is probably writing what uh, 60 years earlier but he makes this notation that when you when you are conveying a character's spiritual inner self you have to do that through actions you have to show their actions and how their actions manifest or or um exemplify what their inner self is. And for me, I wonder if Forster is taking it then like another step beyond that. It's well, you might be able to look at their actions, but even their actions might not really be an indication of what their true spiritual self is. Like Leonard Bast, I felt like in the first whatever five, six chapters when we met him, I felt like I knew where he was going. When he showed back up on the scene, didn't he strike you as he's a totally different guy? I thought that we were set up at the end of chapter five to think Leonard Bass, he's going to go on this um, great books campaign. He's going to culture him. He's going to enculturate himself. He might even not stay with this woman that he seems kind of bound unhappily to. And then he shows up. I can almost hear kind of a Cockney accent that I didn't hear in the first five chapters. He's married to this woman and his yes, he's been reading some books, but his, the moment that he has shared has more been this kind of like um, bizarre flight to nature. It doesn't seem to me be in keeping with what we saw from the first five chapters. Huh. Do you is that a agreeing or like? Well, I'm trying agreeing? to think about what he's saying. I I didn't feel it was inconsistent at all because I thought what happened with the walk was this very romantic as in, you know, the romantic period, Mm -hmm. this sense of wonder that he just, he explored his sense of wonder, which I thought shed a different light on, on, I did not read Leonard Bass in the first five chapters as like trying to experience art in this kind of useful, pragmatic, bettering himself way, but that he's truly trying to enter that world of wonder. 
And so he's walking and he's talking and he's having this wonder and trying to be led by the North Star and it's super romantic and he's quoting books and he's saying how he felt he felt the book, right? He's walking around, he feels the book and he comes alive with them in the moment. So I, I, I mean, I do agree that there's an unexpectedness because we're supposed to feel it. They're surprised. He's surprised that he let them see him. And they're surprised at what they see, but mm -hmm. the essence of it didn't surprise me. Like, I didn't think, whoa, where'd this come from? You know, just but that this is what he's wanted all along, that this wonder. And I love that he immediately ran away from it and thinks it can never be repeated because ugh, I do the same thing. Because it was magical. That moment was magic and is going to carry him for the rest of his life. And he doesn't want to try to repeat it because if it doesn't live up to the magic, it'll just destroy him. And it'll, because it'll destroy the memory that he had of that magic moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, one thing I was thinking about, I wrote in the margins at the beginning of chapter 13, is that this is a book that is kind of decidedly anti-hurry in a lot of ways. Oh. Like you get this stuff, the narrator himself is kind of critical of the, um, there's this great phrase in chapter 13, the architecture of hurry. So Margaret, yeah. in, in the streets That's of the city, great. she noted for the first time the architecture of hurry and heard the language of hurry on the mouths of its inhabitants, clipped words, formless sentences, potted expressions of approval or disgust. Um, and, and this goes on. This, the first couple pages of chapter 13 are, are, are awesome. Um, and, it's like, and it seems like from the pace of the book, a book that is sort of... Um, a book that is sort of not interested in the drama, but is more interested in these conversations and giving us commentary. Like that's going to be an anti-hurry book. Like it's not rushing us through things from one event to the next. Oh yeah. It's not it, a page turner. It, and, but, it, and, but, it, but even more so it's like slowing us down and like the way he writes, he'll go through these like really beautiful poetic passages and then the style will shift a little bit and it'll become much more intellectual and it'll like, we'll have to kind of slow our brains down. Like somehow, like, like, you know, almost like you, when you're reading different, different, two different kinds of writers who have different sort of approaches or different styles, and then you'll get into the dialogue and the dialogue will really zip along. And then all of a sudden mm. he pulls us out of it. And it's like, he doesn't want us to get too comfortable or too, um, too used to, uh, too adapted to a specific pace. Um, yeah. Interesting. And I think that in some ways that might be, that might be a sort of, experiential objective correlative to borrow T.S. Eliot's line uh, of some of these themes that he's sort of talking about. Um, and I don't know exactly what I mean by that yet, but that's just sort of something I've been thinking about. And I don't know that I could give you like an argument for that. No, it's, I like of, that. it's like a feeling that I have, like he's presenting this slow pace and he's kind of lingering on that idea. And, you know, even as people change, um, and even as things are changing around us, it's you can't decide what that means too quickly, if that makes sense. I also feel like what you're describing is the same kind of tension in Howard's Inn, right? The tension between the tree and the roots, and I'm unmovable here, and them mm -hmm. trying to put the garage, right? The, mm -hmm. the speed up and the slow and the tension there, and um, ultimately just saying, those are not compatible. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. One. But I have a question, and maybe no one of us know the answer. I read a, a Room with a View a long time ago, so I don't remember, but is this typical of how he writes, or is that just for this book? I haven't read his other stuff in so long that I don't know that I would be comfortable giving you Yeah, I don't know either. I can't remember, but I'm, I'm curious. I don't know either. 
because the room with the view is, you know, as I recall, very romantic. And what I want to know is in that passage that I read, what did you guys take romantic beauty to mean? Well, I think it's interesting that that ends chapter 13 and then chapter ends chapter 12. And then at the beginning of chapter 13, we get this two year jump where he talks about the Schlegels living in their lives of cultured, but, but not ignoble ease. And then he gets into that, the stuff about the architecture of Hurdy and like London and nature withdrawing, um, the fascination of London, intelligent without purpose and excitable without love. So the idea of nature, um, and in contrast with the city, like, I don't think it can be, it's an accident that he brings that to us right after ending this section about romantic beauty. I don't know what that, I don't know exactly what he's trying to say or what that means, but I can, that can't be an accident. Hmm. All right. So I'm thinking a few different ways you could translate it. So if you translate romance as like a love story, then what he says is life is not unmanageable because it's a battle. It's unmanageable because it's a love story. So what would that mean? Ups and downs, you know, ecstasy and heartbreak. But that those are not battles, right? Those are sort of waves to ride. Mm. And it's beautiful. The ecstasy is beautiful. The heartbreak is beautiful. It's, it's beautiful, but it's not going to ever feel like a battle where you've decidedly won and everything from here on out is smooth sailing because we won the battle, right? Yeah. Yeah. A love affair, or however he puts it, is a much more complicated thing than a battle. Right. I love that he says life is unmanageable. That is a blow at the heart of modernity. Hmm. We all want to manage our lives. I've heard your dad talk about that, how we're all trying to manage our lives. We're all trying to solve the problem of our lives. Hmm. He may have just said that on Facebook like a million years ago. I see you're talking about Tim's dad. Yes, Tim's dad and I, we talk all the time. Oh my gosh, he's the best. <laughs> he does seem like he's the best. He does. I just have not experienced this other than secondhand. So props to Tim's dad. Well, Tim, you asked the question. So what do you think? I mean, any student that said that to you, you'd be like, you'd slap him across the face. But I, <laughs> I doubt you would. Um, just for the record, Tim does not slap his students. But ah, only because he teaches online. That's right, right. <laughs> So what, how did you read that, that uh, romantic beauty part? I did not read it as, I don't think any of us did, um, the love between a man and a woman. <laughs> I read it as, oh gosh, I don't know. I really don't know. I, beauty, but it seems like... He the fact that he had to modify it with the word romantic is what has thrown me off. I don't, yeah. The word choices, the syntax of that sentence is really interesting because he says it's unmanageable. It, well, let's just go back. So as Angelina said, it is indeed unmanageable, but the essence of it is not a battle. Fairly straightforward sentence. It is unmanageable because it is a romance and its essence is romantic beauty. And it's interesting to me that he went, that he brought the word romance in twice in the same sentence. Mm-hmm. So it's because it's a romance and he didn't just say it's essence is beauty, as you say. So it's a romance and it's uh, essence is romantic don't you beauty. think that he's just trying to draw a contrast between, I mean, there's a beauty in battle. People talk about that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, victory and triumph and courage and 
self-sacrifice. So he's not talking about the beauty of the battlefield. He's talking about the beauty of the love affair. I mean, I don't know, like, this is, that was, it's hard to put this into words. I had more of a sense of it than, than I, than I tried to articulate it. I think that this book seems to, that might be the, a compliment. Evo- <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it tends to evoke um, interpretations based on the sense of it that are kind of hard to articulate. I find yeah. myself, it's really hard for me to articulate. Yeah. Like I have kind of an intuitive notion of what he means by romantic beauty. It's Okay, so but it's the fact that he puts it against battle. So it's almost like this isn't a wrestling match. This is a dance. Hmm. One of the things that's interesting that we're struggling, like we're struggling to figure out exactly what's going on here, but he, it's, it's, it's presented as Margaret's realization. Yes. So he says, Margaret realized the chaotic nature of our daily life. And then he presents all this. And then at the end, Margaret hoped that for the future, she would be less cautious, not more cautious than she had been in the past. Yes. And a little coda on the end of the chapter is really interesting because it could have ended with its essence as romantic beauty. And he brings the character back in again, reminds us that, that we're in her head here. This is what she learned from it, right? Yeah, and, and that's such an interesting lesson to learn. Like, I don't know that that's the lesson I would learn from all these thoughts. If I had that kind of, those kind of thoughts, which I do all the time, just to be clear, like <laughs> 20, 30 times a day, then at the end, I don't know that I would have thought. What I need to be is less cautious. Okay, so all I can say is this whole episode and these chapters has been spooky crazy because I am not kidding you that I had this, ex- all of the, everything we have talked about, I had this exact conversation with someone today. I'm not even kidding you. Okay, I literally said to this person, I have committed this year to being less cautious, not more cautious. Like I literally said that <laughs> that was my conclusion at the last, at the end of 2017. I was going forward with the commitment to no longer overthink everything, less cautious, not more cautious. And then I, this is why I put this passage on Facebook because I was like, what the what? <laughs> had <laughs> you, had you read the book or after no, you? No, no. I read the chapters after I had that conversation. Hmm. It was uh, everything we have talked about today. I had this conversation with someone like all of this stuff. It's just hmm. blowing my mind. Your life is foreshadowing E.M. Forrester. I hope something good happens to Margaret. I can't wait to get my house. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, but what, so why does, why is that the realization that she has? That the future would be less, she should be less cautious. Because she needs to stop preparing for a battle that's never going to come. And that's closing her off to living life. So she's, she's, she's being too guarded. She's putting up a fortress around herself and that that, right. Right. Which I think is pretty typical of oldest children, especially when they had some kind of tragedy. So both the parents died and she had to become the caretaker. I think that's very, very common that she's going to be cautious. The unthinkable happened to them and they became homeless. (laughs) Yeah. Do you think of her as, does she seem like an anxious person? Like, do you think that that cautiousness comes from anxiety? I don't know how to. You, it, That's a good I, question. I mean, do we know her enough? No, I don't it know. It is a good question. I don't know. Maybe we don't know enough. You think it would make sense if she has anxiety? She seems less free than Helen. Absolutely. Don't you feel that yeah. way? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. But I know a lot of wild birds that are less free than Helen. 
<laughs> well, let's just remember that at the beginning, you said you were Helen. Oh, really? You did. And I've been reading all these chapters saying, I just can't see it. Well, okay. see, now, fair, okay. You may have gotten the characters confused and thought that Helen was Margaret. <laughs> Maybe so. Or to be fair, like we just didn't know. I, I just don't well, I know Helen. Knew, okay. Well, I never knew exactly what you meant when you said you identified with Helen. So, I mean, I figured you didn't, you didn't mean you were a dreamy girl, but... <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite things my favorite lines in the book is in chapter 15 the first line where it says the sisters went out to dinner full of their adventure um yeah and i love that like they use the adventure they an adventure to them was walking along the river with fast like they and then that was they took the, like they came away like we just had a great adventure let's go tell everybody about what we just experienced and his and it's like only slightly less adventuresome than his like walking around at night when the owls are like hooting at him yeah like, yeah, <laughs> freaking out because of nothing. Like well, it's that's only... why they were so excited. <laughs> I, I, I was just like, I was just imagining like Tolkien reading this and just being like, I gotta write Lord really? of the Rings. I gotta write. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> he would have totally understood. They're the <laughs> hobbits. Well, yeah. Well, so wait, so basically, what he does, he read that and he's like, I need to create these characters and send them on a real adventure somewhere. <laughs> exactly. Hey, um, can I share you guys my favorite little section? This is from uh, yeah, 15 do. about midway. This is after the ladies have gone to their discussion club in which they, and in the discussion club, there's, you know, kind of like a fictional like millionaire discussion club and you like chuckled. Yeah, that was very condescending. <laughs> oh, was it like as if we're not in a discussion club, or the three I mean, of us? You did not actually use the word little and pat anyone's head. But I kind of felt it. I kind of, they're little clubs. Those, those, ladies, <laughs> those ladies, that little ladies discussion club. No, I think I was laughing because I didn't know whether to call it a debate club or a discussion club. <laughs> I mean, honestly, because this if I'm on the mocking, of you arguing against women's suffrage, you're yeah. going down. My, my no, wife, I'm my done wife for. Also goes to a little ladies' discussion club. So, no, just listen, kidding. if I'm mocking discussion clubs, I am the worst of hypocrites. <laughs> well, carry um, on, carry on. So this is after the <laughs> discussion club. <laughs> <laughs> The sum, the sum of the discussion club is that the kind of fictionalized um, millionaire has got to decide what to do with her millions upon her death. And she writes, for me, it's on page 122. The millionaire then read out her last will and testament in which yeah. she left the whole of her fortune to the chancellor of the exchequer. Then she died. <laughs> the, serious, the serious parts of the discussion had been high, of, higher measure, of higher merit than the playful in a men's debate. Is the reverse more general? But the meeting broke up hilariously enough, and a dozen happy ladies dispersed to their homes. <laughs> I like that. That pleased me. <laughs> In that little way that they had. <laughs> In the way that they just conversed. It was so cute, the little ladies trying to talk about the big ideas. Such adorable. That was, no, that was, I was saying nothing is not the reason for my chuckle, and you guys know that. There is a part, though, where it says, interestingly, I really need to find a new word. We've gone over this before, but I really need to find a new word other than interesting. Um, there's, a, there's a part where interesting. The, um, Mr. Wilcox, um, th there's a patronizing, she, she refers to it as a patronizing tone. 
Oh, yes, he does. When he's on the train. And he tells them something about their little meeting, yes. It makes oh, one and, quick. And she says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she says, the patronizing tone thought Margaret came well enough from a man who was old enough to be their father. So she's like, hey, it was patronizing, but it's, it's all right. He deserved it. He deserved to adopt that tone. It doesn't bother me that much. <clears throat> but Helen didn't like it. Like, she's kind of smart enough to, to not put up a fight, I guess, if that's the word. I don't know. She doesn't. Yeah. She doesn't. You no, know, Margaret thinks he's charming. Yeah. And, 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 and that condescension. We need to have a little talk, Margaret. <laughs> Margaret, come here. Come here, Dude, girl. Just because a man is charming does not mean he gets to condescend to you. <laughs> Call me after the show. I'm gonna talk. <laughs> this won't do. You're gonna, they're going to text on the way home from the little ladies group later. <laughs> they are. Oh, she's um, been texting me the whole show. She's kind of needy. <laughs> um, well, um, this conversation has taken an interesting turn. Um, interesting. I'm gonna. I need to like go. I'm gonna go on thesaurus.com tonight and type in interesting and just come up with a long list and then keep it in front of me. And then I'm going through the show when my instinct is to say interesting. I'm gonna say something else. How intellectually stimulating that was. Fascinating. Um, I, David, haven't we had that talk about how I banished that word from my writing students' dictionary? Yeah. I, was like, I mean, if I was writing, I wouldn't use it, but I'm not that quick on my feet in a, on a podcast, okay? Oh, stop. Stop. <laughs> it's only taken me two years for you to train me that that's not a left-handed insult. So, you know, <laughs> we just got to stick with it. I'm, I'm trained. If you, if you mix it up, I'll be like, now what's he trying to tell me? What's the subtext there? Maybe there's a word that just doesn't have any negative subtext to it that I can use. Is there um, a word I don't, like I don't. I don't know. Hmm. Well, let's let's turn to some final thoughts. Hopefully, they will be fascinating final thoughts. Um, Angelina, you first. Do you have any final thoughts on the on these on this? Okay, section? so we ended chapter fifteen with our three main threads coming together, right? The Wilcoxes, the Schlegel sisters, and Leonard Bast in that one conversation. Hmm. So let's let's see what he does with that. It's a good point. Is it, it that is an interesting point? Um, <laughs> Tim, was that a was that an interesting little point I made? That was an interesting point, Angelina. That was all right was for that, a woman. Was that an interesting little point? <laughs> get him, Angelina. You gotta get him. I'm just playing along with I'm you. I'm gonna let the close reads listeners go out. Yeah, all right, all right, all right. Just to be just to be clear, I mean I don't even need to. I'm, I don't even need to. You don't need to. Like, you don't need to. Everybody knows you well enough. <laughs> Everybody well, knows that, that I was just being so charming. He's patronizing, but he was so charming. I can I do? You get away with it. I was just piggybacking on things that Tim actually believes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there it is. There it is. Tim, oh. would you like to defend yourself for your final final thoughts or add? No, I would not. Tim, no, I would not. Against women voting and talking. Uh, in public? <laughs> terrible. <laughs> terrible. 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 Uh, my final thoughts are I want to know, I just Tread am light. very curious about Leonard Bast. I just want to know where he's going to go. Do you feel like there's a romance, like, sub, like you know, in, in a lot of books, like even Jane Austen or like, I don't know what, what Bride said or something, he would end up in this romantic situation with like the free thinking Helen. Right. Somehow yes, yeah. he's going some something's gonna turn in him and he's gonna get charming or he's gonna like turn into a Darcy type character and this free thinking woman is gonna 
like fall in love with him. Like that feels like the stereotypical archetypal thing to happen. Well, it definitely yeah. wouldn't be Margaret because Margaret is drawn to the competent man of the world. Right, so right. Helen much more seems like she'd take the wo wounded bird, right? Yeah, yes, yes. Do you, is that what you see, do you think is going to happen? Like if you had to predict, is that what you would predict is going to happen? Oh, yes. If, my hunch is that um, he's pulling, our author is pulling a little bit of a magic trick. And Forster is waving his left hand in the air, making us think, oh, yeah, Leonard's going to marry one of the sisters, but he's going he's gonna to remove that option by the end. That's my hunch. I don't, I don't oh, think that's yeah, I don't think he's going to, I don't have a hunch he's going to marry. And like, I don't have a hunch that it's going to be anything other than tragic if, you know, anything real develops. What's the, um, is it, who, who's the one that marries Elizabeth's little sister in? Is it Wickham? Oh, Wickham. Yeah. Maybe it's so like a situation like that. <clears throat> is that kind of... Yeah, maybe, maybe something like that. Yeah. Oh, I well, don't know. I, I think if I had to guess, there is going to be something between Leonard and Helen, and it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to become a way to explore the class issues. Mm. It's not a gap that can be bridged. So, so going back to Downton, more like the chauffeur and the daughter, Sybil. Right. Something in that reign. She's freaking... I think they're going to find that romantic ideals about love and union of the souls and they have all this you know art or whatever their kindred spirits their soulmates whatever i think they're going to find that um the world they live in will not accommodate that that there are too many practical obstacles and i so that'll fit into a lot of the themes we've been talking about someone the is like the unseen someone is like 20 chapters ahead of us or has finished the book and he's looking at them and like look at these cute little people trying to have Aww. predict what's going to happen in their oh, little, so in their little so literature discussion oh yeah their little discussion club that's cute <laughs> tim who are you going to leave your million dollars to <laughs> wink nudge nudge i am still deciding based on the sorts of <laughs> gifts and uh dessert club memberships that i receive in the mail from friends and acquaintances the of giving we might <laughs> you also might need to call you and margaret we're gonna have a group text later and i'm gonna set both of you straight maybe I'm i would understand it better if someone taught me the way <laughs> i'm intrigued by the fact that you'd be more likely to give someone part of your fortune if they left you dessert club membership <laughs> Like, there's, a, there's, a lead, right there's a lead <laughs> being buried in there somewhere <laughs> okay here's the, honestly the reason is i've been i've done this diet called the whole 30 maybe some of our listeners or maybe you guys have done it yeah there well, so what i know about it for 30 days no sugar dairy alcohol gluten or legumes so and have you guys I, ever seen parks and recreation where yeah. there's this scene where this character's trying to get his girlfriend to jog. It's Rob Lowe's character, and he's, like, super fit. Like, the fittest man in the world, and he's, like, trying to get her to jog. And she's like, yeah, I'm going to get in shape, and it's going to be awesome, and <laughs> and I'm going to be fit. But at what cost? Jogging is terrible. That's how I feel about what you're describing right now. I'm also on a, on a 30 day cleanse diet, um, not whole 30, but something very, very close. So I'm also sugar free. And yet I am not on the air begging for dessert. So all your own conclusions. <laughs> my, my, my response to both of you right now is at what cost though? At, at how much? Okay. Does, 
like my life just has to diminish so much for that. I know there's no, a lot listen of, to me. There's a lot listen of people out there who are like just laughing like at me and shaking their head right now, but that's fine. This this is not just like, oh, let's go through a slimming diet or something like that. I feel so much better when I do oh, this thing, gosh, honestly. My head is so clear. Oh, absolutely. Except for the cold. Well, that, <laughs> I doubt that a sugar diet would have helped with that, David. <laughs> we all know that sugar boosts the immune system. So are we Our still on final thoughts right now or what? Should I have stopped recording? You like should 10- have stopped recording ages ago. <laughs> I feel like we're doling out pearls. On the air. Tim, finish your thought, though, so we can go. <laughs> I can constantly, when I'm on Whole30, I can concentrate so well for so long that I have literally walked through walls. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Tim is hallucinating everybody, and so yeah, he's maybe we can, maybe we can so trim good. that. He's hallucinating now. <laughs> he this is why I can't cream. come into the office. People don't understand the Cersei office is like Willy Wonka's factory. It is full of candy in there. Oh dear. A we, step foot in there, David throws candy at me. Literally, this has happened. That's true. I have given her chocolate on many an occasion. He throws but, it at me, and I catch it in my mouth. Classy. <laughs> I don't remember that part, but I'm gonna I'm gonna assume that it's true. Well, all right, we should go. We should go. I need to go home and make dinner for my my children. It's gonna. It's basically just gonna be M and M's and Skittles. Tim needs to take um, a <laughs> right. Nice, nice. He's a dream of dessert. Yeah, yeah. Tim, if you're hallucinating about walking through walls, you go home and eat some pie or something. I'm going to hallucinate about eating some pie. <laughs> I think all the Close Reads listeners are going to post pictures of dessert on Facebook. Uh, no, that would, be a, that would be a cruel response. That's what's going to happen. More that would be a cruel response. Is I'm going to get criticized. Like, I mean, everyone's going to be like, stop eating so much sugar. Um, <laughs> which is probably, yeah, obviously, but at what cost? Um, <laughs> so we should probably call it a day. Um, <laughs> Woo. Is, are we done? Is that it? We're done. Oh, yeah. I think we were done quite some time ago. For, for for everyone who has not stayed with us and has not endured the, the terrible sense, fell apart once Tim was on of, his misogynist rant and we just never recovered. For everyone who has not endured our or who has decided they're going to endure our ridiculous attempts at pretending that we're funny. Um, Thank you for listening. Thank you for your uh, ongoing support, ongoing participation in the Close Reads community and conversation. And of course, to everyone who has been uh, participating and contributing by being a patron patron through Patreon, we really appreciate that. Um, Hopefully everyone's received their stuff. If you haven't, please let me know. Um, All of the stuff for last month has been sent out. So it's at least in the mail somewhere. Um, For Angelina Stanford, for Tim McIntosh, for all of us here at Cersei, Thank you so much for listening to Close Reads and uh, hope that everyone else out there is avoiding the flu that's going around. And if you do get it, then, you know, just latch onto the grit and grittiness and push through. Talk to you next week. The Close Reads way. Yes. (laughs) Exactly, exactly.